Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter at Joy Keys. Also, check us out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. You can also check out all the archive shows. There are over 600 of them on uh, Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Google, as well as here at Blog Talk Radio. If you have a question or you have a comment, you can email me. You can email me at saturdayswithjoykeys at hotmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. I want to thank you guys for your support. I want to thank you for your donations. Really, really appreciate it. It helps keep the show going. Uh, Thank you so much, and I hope you've enjoyed them and shared them with friends and family. Well, this morning, I am speaking with, wow, you know, you're talking about a reporter, like, you guys think I, like, do stuff, but she's, like, CNN newscaster, okay, and now she's an author. Uh, She's, like, doing it all. She does One World with Zane Asher on uh, CNN. Uh, Good morning, Zane. Hi. Hi, Joy. I'm so, so happy to be on with you today. Yes, that is an accent you hear. She's like across from the pond, across the pond, you know. Across the pond, so, yeah. Across the pond, love, yeah. Top of the morning for you. Yeah. <laughs> that was actually pretty good. That was pretty good. Yes. Was good she also has she also has deep African roots. Her parents are from Nigeria, and she wrote a book. The book is really focused a lot on her mom. It has some of her in there. It has some of her, her siblings in there but a lot about her mom. Why this book? Why now? So um, just to sort of give, you know, the readers or the listeners rather um, some context about the book. um, This book is really a celebration of my mother and a celebration of, you know, everything that she had achieved in her life, especially in how she raised us. And it was my way of saying thank you to her. The book, as you know, starts off with um, the most difficult time in our lives as a family. It was in September 3rd, 1988, and my mother was at home waiting for my dad to call. My dad was on a road trip with my brother, and he was supposed to call her uh, that morning just to sort of say, hey, listen, we're at the airport, we've landed, come and pick us up. And my mother waited and waited and waited and waited for hours, and there was no call. And obviously she was getting worried, um, waiting by the phone, and very anxious. And then she gets a phone call, and she just rushes over to answer it, and she expects it to be my dad. And it wasn't my dad. Um, Mm. It was somebody else, uh, a voice that Mm. she barely even recognized. But the voice on the other end of the line simply said, your husband and your son have been involved in a car crash. One of them is dead, and we don't know which one. And so my father and my brother were on the road trip um, in Nigeria because my dad really wanted to show my brother a little bit more about our culture. As you talked about, we were raised in London, and so, you know, we were minorities in an overwhelming white society. My dad just thought, you know what, Um, a road trip across Nigeria showing my son how much this heritage and this culture has to offer would be a great thing. And um, on the road um, from Enugu, where we're originally from, which is a a sort of small town, to Lagos, which is like, you know, the New York of of Nigeria, um, their car was hit by a tractor trailer. 
um, and my father ended up passing away. But um, there was so much confusion at the scene of the accident, and initially they thought that everybody, nobody made it out. And then, you know, they, my, my family in the village, my extended family in the village, you know, heard that maybe there was one survivor, you know, maybe one person had survived in the backseat, but there was so much mm-hmm. confusion. And in fact, um, because the bystanders thought that everyone had passed away and the authorities who arrived thought that everyone had passed away, all the people in the car were originally taken to the morgue. And it was only when the driver of that truck arrived at the morgue and began unloading the bodies that he realized that my brother was actually still breathing. So that was mm. where a lot of the confusion mm. came from. And so the book details and shows just how despite that enormous emotional earthquake, that utter pain, that gut-wrenching loss and devastation, my mother really fought for us. She fought with every fiber of her being. She carried us on her back for years as a single mother, as a widow, um, living in a sort of rough neighborhood in London, um, yeah. to give us a better life. And, and thanks to her, you know, my siblings and I have surpassed all expectations because of some of the things she did. As you know, I'm an anchor at CNN. Um, my mm-hmm. brother um, is an actor. He was nominated for an Oscar um, for his role in 12 Years a Slave, the starring role. And then my sister's a doctor, and my oldest brother is a successful entrepreneur. And so a lot of the questions that I've had my whole life is how on earth did your mother, despite going through that, how did she manage to raise you guys in that way? Let me tell you something, Zane. Zane, let me tell you something. As a mother, and, and, you know, you're a mother now, and and as a mother myself, you're like, we are super people, okay? We are super (laughs) people, and we will go like to the ends of the earth, like we could probably pick up a car. If our child was under the car, mm-hmm. we could probably pick up a car, you know, and I'm sure yeah, you're absolutely. learning the, 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 you're learning for yourself. You know, I, I think when I grew up and thought about love, you think about man, woman, or man, man, or, you know, it, it, you think about adults in a certain way about love, but a, a love that a parent has for a child, it's like, like you become like, you know, crazed almost uh, the protection, you know, for that child. Most of the time, some people don't have that connection or attachment, if you will. But most of the time you become crazed about protecting them and, and wanting the best for them, um, their survival, everything, you know, you can do. You, you will go above and beyond um, doing that. Um, but before we get a little further, let's just talk about, you know, what did you want to be when you were little? Because it wasn't a CNN anchor. Tell the audience what you wanted to be when you were little. <laughs> oh, my God. I had, um, I had so many different things that I, I wanted to be. Um, I think at one point I told my mom I wanted to be either a doctor like my daddy or, or a postman. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, we just sort of, you know, when you're, when you're little, you sort of have no concept of what you want to be when you grow up, um, when you're sort of seven, eight years old. But... I think that thanks to some of the things that my mother did, she really allowed me to unpeel the layers um, in terms of discovering what I wanted to do. And I think that one thing that she did amazingly well, you talk about going to the ends of the earth for your children. Um, but once we decided what we wanted to do, she supported us 100%. I, I talk about um, this thing that my mother used to do in the book, um, which was that at one point when I was seven years old, she went to my teacher's to ask for my school syllabus for the entire year. 
just to figure out what we were going to be what we were going to be learning at certain points throughout the year. And whatever we were learning in say a month or two from now or from then, she would teach it to us at home beforehand, so that by the mm-hmm. time it came up in school, we already knew it. And yeah. um, that had a that had a oh my gosh that had a profound impact on on us. Um, because you know, it's amazing. It's amazing that she did that. I mean, because I know when I was, my daughter was little, I was uh, working, I was going to school myself, and I can't, like the energy. That's what I'm saying. The energy <laughs> and the drive of the mother, you know. But see, now we have to bring in the cultural aspect. You know, your parents are Nigerian, um, and they're from Africa, and there's a different mindset about what parents will do for their children and what is expected of their children than, say, other parts of the world, so to speak. And um, she really, really set you straight. My daughter will tell you, and, and I don't even remember this, and this is another thing. Sometimes as parents we do things and we're doing so many things we forget. And uh, my daughter's like, oh, Mom, no, I, I couldn't bring anything, like, lower than a bee home. And I was like, <laughs> what? What are you talking about? She was like, no, I was scared of you. I was like, really? <laughs> I was like, I was scary? Like, you know, I mean, I was like, you know, but I love your mom, though. I really do. Please tell her I said hi from one mom to another. So but funny. one of the things I loved about her was she was no holds bar, and I was like that, too. So one of the things I loved is, and this is the favorite part, is the telephone. The pay telephone. Oh, yeah. Please tell the audience about the pay telephone because that sounds like some stuff I would do. Tell them about the <laughs> pay telephone. Right. Yeah, so, there were, so basically for context, um, you talk about the whole immigrant mentality, and it, it's because my mom coming from Africa, and when she left Nigeria, there was a civil war, and so she left behind a lot and sacrificed so much to make it to England, mm-hmm. to make it to the West, and because of that, she wasn't going to waste what she thought was a, an opportunity of a lifetime to, you know, some people have it with coming to the United States, you know, some people have it with going to England, but she sort of felt that the educational opportunity that England would offer could change her children's lives forever. And so yes. when I was a teenager, she came up with this idea that, you know, she thought that um, she, she really sort of wanted me to go to Oxford University and, you know, obviously Oxford University is our version of Harvard and Yale. Um, and so my grades at that time were good, you know, but they weren't great. They weren't, it wasn't like my teachers were like, oh my gosh, you are definitely Oxford material. Not at all. I was a good student, not great. And so my teachers were like, maybe she should aim a bit lower. You know, Oxford is like the best, one of the best universities in the world, aim lower. And so my mother... Um, at one point just sort of paced her bedroom um, and began trying to come up with a plan and sort of trying to sort of figure out what can I do as a mother? What can I do to guarantee that my child is going to go to Oxford (laughs) University? How can I guarantee that my daughter is going to get into Oxford University? And Mm. she paced her bedroom and she came to mine and she said, I've got it. I know exactly how to guarantee that you are going to go to Oxford University. And I said, what? And she basically decided to ban me from watching any television whatsoever until I had an actual Oxford acceptance letter in hand. Mm. So it was about roughly around two years without television. So being a normal teenager, once the television was banned, I began to look for other distractions, right? You know, fine, there's no TV. What am I going to do with my time? 
I decided to yep. spend yep. most of my time on the phone. And remember that mm-hmm. we're talking about the late 90s, so there's no Netflix, there's no um, YouTube or right. you know, Instagram, right? It's, it's literally just sort of television, your main source of entertainment, and then you have the phone. So I began to spend all my time on the phone, and then my mother, thinking about how to eliminate that distraction, she ended up buying what we, we, we called in England at that time a residential payphone. Um, so you could, you could find these very small payphones. You typically find them in, in England um, in doctor's offices, for example. And they looked like normal landlines, except they had a slot on one side for coins. So you could plug them mm. in in your living room or in your kitchen. It's not like those massive payphones you would find in the right. streets, you know, right. in, in the U.S. or whatever. It's really small. And so she brought it home. And starting from that day onwards, if I wanted to call a friend, or anyone else, I would have to pay for the call by putting coins in, like 20p a minute, mm. which is the same as like a quarter. And <laughs> so, so it literally meant that I had no television and I had to pay for my own phone calls. So basically, I had nothing else to do but study. There was no television. There was no talking on the phone with my friends. Once I came home mm. from school, I could either just stare out the window or I could pick up a book. And initially, um, I chose the first option. I decided that I was going to, um, you know, just sort of stare out the window and do nothing. But eventually, mm-hmm. I began to pick up a book, and I actually began to reluctantly enjoy it. Um, so she eliminated all distractions for me, which was a game changer when I eventually applied to Oxford and, of course, uh, got in. You know, you talked about your mom uh, coming from Nigeria, uh, fleeing and, and leaving everything and, and mentioning the Biafra War. Can you tell the audience, some of them may not know what that is or, or, or what, why that even happened. Could you just tell them a little brief synopsis of that? Yeah, so um, the Biafra War started in 1967, and it was one of the most brutal, deadliest wars in African history. It started because my region, where I'm originally from, which is the eastern part of Nigeria, wanted to secede from um, the rest of the country. So you think about, you know, the civil war in the United States. Think of it, think of it like that. Um, and so we had this tiny sort of oil-producing region in the country. We rose up and we said, you know what, we want our own independent country. There were various reasons for that, including our tribe felt that we were being discriminated against um, for a very long time. But when mm-hmm. that war happened, it was vicious. It was uh, a dreadful time to be alive in Nigeria because starvation was used as a weapon of war. And so people in my tribe were, you know, were reduced to eating snakes to survive. They, people ate crickets, people ate termites. You know, my mother mm-hmm. told me lots of horror stories about that time. And, you know, the soldiers had to try to sort of put together their own weapons. I mean, there was just, there was, and the soldiers were hungry. Um, so the war lasted about two and a half years before my tribe eventually surrendered because you can't live like that. It's not sustainable for very long. And um, two million people in my region died of starvation. Um, so more mm-hmm. people actually died of hunger than, than bullets and bombs. Um, Your grandfather so, yeah. even almost died uh, when he was trying to, to, to get back to your grandmother. Um, you know, that was a really close call for him. Uh, when he was trying to hide out, so to speak, amongst the crowd. And, well, he was on the bus, correct? I think he was? 
it was on, on the train, actually. On the that train, was actually, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was actually just before the war. And so... Oh, just in, before, we're yeah. From, yeah, we're, we're from the eastern part of Nigeria. And so originally, a lot of people who belong to my tribe, my tribe is called the Igbo tribe, a lot of us lived in the northern part of the country, but we were minorities in the north and we were heavily discriminated against. And there was um, something known as the pogroms, which was when... Um, you know, people who belonged to my tribe were attacked and killed and, you know, um, discriminated against through very, very violent means. And so my grandfather was almost caught up in an incident like that. But it was after all of the Igbos um, then migrated back to our original homeland in the eastern part of the country, then war broke out. Mhm. Mhm. Now you you know you think well we went to uh, London and things are going to be better, and uh, a lot of things probably were better. But you, as a young African child in an all-white school, had to deal with something that black children in America, black girl children in America, also had to deal with, which is the hair issue and the swimming pool. Talk to the audience yeah. about that experience for you. What happened to yeah, you and, uh, and in, in London? Was, you know, we, like every, any, every black person in an overwhelming sort of white society where their minorities understand what racism is and the many, many forms that it takes. And for me, the, the form that it took was really being um, ostracized and somewhat bullied in school. There was one time in school that I would never, I'll never forget, um, which was that we had swimming lessons every Wednesday. And every time that I got into the swimming pool, the other children, you know, me being basically the only black child, the other children, as soon as I put my toe in the pool, the other children would scream and cry because they thought that if I was in the pool, then the water would turn brown. That's what they Mm. feared. And so Mm -hmm. they would try to run to the, or swim rather, to the other end of the pool screaming and crying because they thought, oh my gosh, like the water's going to turn brown because this girl is in, in, in the pool. And so, yeah, that was a difficult one, um, you know, around when I was nine years old. And so the book is filled with a few anecdotes like that. that um, the same thing know, happens sort of, here, you know, same thing for African-American children here. Um, the, the issue of the, the water turning brown, um, you know, people might get sick. Um, and, and there's many stories of black people being turned away from swimming pools, having to create yeah. their own swimming pools here. Um, and, and one of the problems that it actually developed was a lot of African-American children and people don't know how to swim um, and don't have that skill. Yeah. And have, there are a lot of drownings even till, to this day. Yeah. And then the second yeah, half so of the is the hair issue, the hair issue of, oh, my God, my hair is going to scrunch up and be kinky and not straight. And, oh, that's a whole other story. We do a whole show on that, you know. Um, (laughs) But uh, your mom, back to your mom, though, she had a creative idea but was also, again, let's go back to your culture. She wanted to ship you back to Nigeria. Talk to the audience about this shipping back to uh, Africa for many for many young children uh, whose parents are um, immigrants uh, in other places? Yeah, so my mom sent me back to Nigeria to live by myself for two years. And when I say by myself, I don't mean, like, with nobody taking care of me. I mean without my parents. So um, she sent me to live with my grandparents for two years. And 
it sort of sounds very extreme to a Western audience. Like, my gosh, why would you send your child to another country to live for two years without you? And in Nigeria and among Nigerian immigrant communities, this practice is very common. Um, if you are a Nigerian parent and you are raising your children in the United States or in the UK, very common to at some point, usually before the end of high school, to send them back to Nigeria to live without you for two years. And the reason is, sometimes it's longer than two years, by the way, um, the reason is, is because we sort of believe that when you can survive in that kind of environment, um, an environment that is filled with discipline, um, strict rules, um, hard work, where you have to respect your elders, that sort of thing, if you can survive in that kind of environment, you can handle anything in the West. Um, mm -hmm. Because it's a, generally from that perspective, there's other things about living in you know, the Western world that is tough, especially when it comes to being a minority. But from that perspective, or from an, you know, various other perspectives, in other ways it can be much easier. And so this is a way that um, Nigerian parents choose to teach their children resilience. And that is what those two years are meant to do. So there's examples I write about in the book of like having to catch my own food. Not very often, but, you know, I did it nonetheless. Um, fetching water from a stream for our drinking water, that sort of thing. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. going to a school where, you know, punishment meant if you're talking in class, you had to clean the toilet. And by the way, cleaning the toilet in a country that does not have running water is really quite something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because the toilets don't flush and you have to clean them. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so two years of that, you know, the idea is you come back to London or you come back to wherever you live, Texas, or New York, whatever, um, and you're a changed person. And, you know, it works. You know, it sounds so extreme, but it is a, a big part of our culture. And, you know, for me, it, it worked. Do you think you're going to send your kids? Um, I think that uh, my kids, my, my kids are obviously American. I've lived in this country for about 17 years now. And um, unfortunately, I don't have the same network of community, this sort of community infrastructure for them that I had growing up. My grandparents are not okay. alive anymore. Um, right. My mom lives in London. So who would I send them back to? That, that would be the issue. I mean, I have an aunt that lives there by herself. Um, so I don't know if I could send them back to her. I haven't really asked her. <laughs> to watch my kids. Can you watch my kids for two years? Okay, thanks so much, you know? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, I, I, yeah, I wouldn't know. But we, my husband and I talked about it, um, and we sort of said that we would try to arrange, like, summers in Nigeria, so maybe they could stay with my aunt for like a month in, in Nigeria. That would seem yeah. much more manageable, you know. Mm -hmm. um, your mom, um, you know, she, like you said, very resilient and did all types of things. Um, but a beautiful um, ending was when she got to go to see the queen, uh, where the queen lived. I thought that was a really um, a beautiful uh, moment for her. Um, and, and as a mother, just the, 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 I could like feel or just see her smile, you know, um, that, uh, that joy, um, that, and, and pride that she probably had, um, you know, for your brother. But now, um, 
let's just talk a little bit about your father. We only have a couple minutes left. Tell the audience, I mean, he was like larger than life, the way you describe him. Uh, and he was multi-talented in so many fields. Uh, tell the audience about him. Yeah, my father was a very special person. And, you know, one of the sort of holes in my heart that I'll never be able to fill is the fact that I didn't really know him because I was five when he was killed in that car crash. Um, So in order to research the book, I had to talk to a lot of people about my dad. And the thing is, I haven't really done anything like that before because it's so painful to talk about him to me. Mm. Um, But, you know, I think one good thing about writing this book is that for the longest time, any time anybody you know, would ever mention my dad, I'd have to excuse myself and go and cry and, and, you know, emerge because it it hasn't, I haven't really healed from that, even though it Mm -hmm. happened, you know, over 30 years ago. But in researching this book, I really felt like I truly got to know him. He was a charismatic human being. He was charming. He was funny. He was well-read. So intelligent. So bright. I mean, people would say that, you know, any time that my dad left a room, it always felt like three people had just left, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Because he was so, like, he was so bubbly and so full of energy. And my uncle, my mom's brother, said to me, "Every, um, every aspect of who I am as a man has been modeled after your dad. And I just thought that was such a beautiful compliment. And so for me, you know, I've spent my entire life trying to find my dad, and through this book, I finally found him. So yeah, really, he was a romantic. Yeah, yeah, he was, he was a very romantic, romantic as well. I, I, don't, I don't want to tell the story, but let me tell you, he goes to the ends of the like, oh, my God, he goes above and beyond for trying to find her mom. Um, so, so you have to read it. I'm going to be giving away some copies of your book. Um, oh, so I want to so encourage great. people – no problem. I encourage people to follow me on Twitter at Joy Keys. Also check me out on Facebook Saturday mornings with Joy Keys and on Instagram Saturdays with Joy Keys. Zane, where can they find you on social media? Um, at Zane Asher CNN on Instagram and at Zane Asher on Twitter. And you can check her out on One World with Zane Asher weekdays at 12 p.m. on CNN International. Check her out there. She's doing a lot of great work. Thank you so much for, again, waking up this morning. I should say, Dalu, uh, uh, for, for, for doing the <laughs> wow. show. Yeah. How did you um, know? Oh, yeah, because you learned it from the book? Or <laughs> Well, no, I've had a lot of evil authors on. you got to check it out. Wow. There's a lot of evil people on here. Um, so <laughs> that is amazing. That is amazing. Yeah, Dalu means thank you in my language. That's great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that it's important. Great. It really connects people when you know their language, you know where they're from, you, you understand a little bit. You can't completely, but I think that's an important skill. And just like your mom with the reading, my daughter, I've taught her about learning other languages. And so when she travels, she tries to do that type of thing as well. And it's worked for her. Doors open, let's put it that way, when you respect yeah. other people's culture. You no, know, absolutely. I think. No, I'm a big believer yeah. in that. But um, thank mm-hmm. you so much for having me. Join All right. Me. Well, thank you. Go and be a mommy and, and have a good I day. Eat some pancakes or <laughs> my clean up spills or whatever. Up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank All you right. so much, Joy. All the best, my dear. All the best to you, too. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Thank you, everybody, again, for tuning in. You can check the shows out on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Google, as well as here at Blog Talk Radio. I just got off the phone with CNN newscaster and author now, Zane Asher. She wrote a book, Where the Children Take Us. I'm going to give away some copies, so you want to follow me again on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook to find out how to win. And you would need to email your answer to SaturdaysWithJoyKeys at Hotmail.com. Again, that's SaturdaysWithJoyKeys at Hotmail.com. But all that information will be on the posting. So, again, follow on social media. And, again, check her out, One World of Zane Asher, weekdays at 12 p.m. on CNN International. I will talk to you next Saturday. I hope you guys have a great week. And, uh, again, don't forget to follow. And you can also make donations through PayPal, Saturdays with Joy Keys. Have a wonderful weekend.